each one of us is a carbon emitter, like just by eating, living. And that's not, I mean, we should absolutely do those things. We, we, we we're not going to say that those things are bad, but that is it, it, we are all contributing to it, companies at a much larger level. And then, of course, governments, we're trying to do that at a global level over the, over the course of decades to get to a place that science says is safe for our globe. That's very difficult. And especially when you have to deal with the globe and not just your own country, not just your own state, not just your own city, but the globe. That's complex. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Higher Standard Podcast, where we give you ultra-premium, unfiltered truth when it comes to building your wealth and curating the lifestyle of your dreams. No games, no drama, and no shenanigans. I am your host, Chris Nahibi, and I'm here to help you distill the immense amount of information and disinformation out there on the interwebs and give you the opportunity to choose a higher standard for yourself. There are no gurus here, and no one gives a damn about how wealthy you look. I'm an attorney and a banker, amongst other things. Does that mean you should listen to me? Hell no. This is just full disclosure that while we talk about money, wealth, law, investing, and a lot of related topics, you should always speak to your own advisors for an opinion tailored to your unique investment perspective. I am obligated to tell you that nothing contained in this show is in fact legal or investment advice and is being provided solely for entertainment purposes. So sit back, Relax your mind and get ready for a different kind of podcast where we elevate your baseline in crispy, high-resolution audio. This isn't a different standard. It's the higher standard. Welcome back to the higher standard. Another guest appearance for you. I'm your guy, Chris, and today we're interviewing Benji Backer. He's a founder, president, and board member at the ACC, the American Conservation Coalition this young man has entrepreneurial spirit like running through his veins, and you find out really early in the episode that his parents had a, a steady hand in that influence, and kudos to them. They sound like amazing people, and they raise an, an amazing guy. The ACC works with corporations, college campus activists, and politicians to further its cause. What is the cause? The nonprofit's focused on common sense, pro-business, and economically sound environmentalism. A lot of you are going to hear that and have a lot of questions. We unpack all of that in the episode. We also talk about how Benji became so passionate about this topic and how he grows and builds a nonprofit. And as a gentleman who's helped co-found and grow nonprofits himself, I can tell you that the nonprofit space is unlike tradi traditional business in so many ways. And when you start off, you're really running on a shoestring sometimes and finding a way to be impactful Without the money is this adversity that builds the character of the organization and the culture to give you more power and more influence when you do have the money because you know the things that work. Benji's story was a great one. I really enjoyed talking to him. He's just a super genuine and authentic dude, and I think that comes through. With no further ado, let's jump into it. All right. Welcome to the show, Benji. Uh, Benji Backer, you're our guest today. And I got to tell you, your background was fascinating to me because it was a different path. And I, I find different paths so super fascinating. I want to hear all it is about what you're doing now. And I definitely want to hear how you got from where you were in school to this journey. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank, thank, first of all, thank you for having me. I mean, it's uh, entrepreneurs who have lived and breathed their failures and successes understand each other at a level that 
other people can't. And uh, it's it's always exciting to have these conversations. And so I'm, I'm excited and thrilled to be part of it. I I guess I'll start by having a quick story about my background. I grew up in Wisconsin and in a family of entrepreneurs. My parents kind of prioritized the location of where we were living as a family over their financial growth opportunities that you know lied in in big cities and in different parts of the country. They wanted to stay in Wisconsin and my dad started a couple of companies. They were moderately successful. But then he, uh, at the end of my uh, middle or elementary school, started uh, a company that he ended up selling uh, at the end of my high school career. And so really throughout my entire childhood, I was going through the waves of entrepreneurship that my parents were going through. Hmm. Were you cognitively aware of it then? Or is it only later that you kind of figured out what they were dealing with? I was very consciously aware of it. I didn't understand it, right? It's not like a, and now I do because I've gone through it, but you don't understand it until you go through it, but I, d- I was aware of it and I could respect it, right? It does make sense that if you're building a new company, you're going to have to work a lot, right? <laughs> or if if you're building a new company that you might be a little stressed from time to time. And But they always prioritize family. I mean, they worked a ton, but it was work and family. That was it. No friends, really. Um, not that they didn't have friends, but just no time with friends, no big vacations alone. It was amazing how much they prioritize family. Um, so, so that's kind of where the, the spirit of entrepreneurship came from. I have two older sisters who also kind of pushed me to, to, to be a hard worker. But then what happened was I started volunteering in politics because I was really interested in making a difference in politics when I was 10, really weird thing to start doing when you're 10 years old. And I ended up by, by senior year of high school, I'd already been in politics for seven years and had been like on the national stage for political speeches and had gotten to know all these, you know, high profile political leaders. And I really felt bad about how much that was defining who I was. Like at school, I was the political oh, kid. And oh, bad about that? Like, there's, there's more to me than that. Well, <laughs> yeah, but you had a career. I mean, by the time you were, you know, 18, you already had, a, you know, a, essentially a tenured career in one of the hardest things for a young person to be taken seriously. In. And that, that, that's impressive, dude. Well, thank you. I mean, partially it's just because I was relentless. I mean, I, I I never took no for an answer. If someone told, like the first first time I ever went into a political campaign office, they said, your voice is too high and not changed enough because my voice hadn't changed yet. And I obviously sounded wow. like a 10-year-old. Um, <laughs> oh, you can't God. make phone calls for our campaign. And I was like, I'm making phone calls. That's such a D-bag thing to say, though. That's not, I mean. <laughs> it, anyway. was, it, was, uh, it was a little harsh, but. I also understood like if you're calling someone asking them to donate or vote or whatever, and there's just like, hi, I'm Benji Becker. Would yeah, you yeah, no, I get, I get it's a little weird, but yeah, I did but take it's also no catching. It could be a marketing tool. You never know. Right. That's very true. Um, but most people hate young kids in politics when they see them like with the sign, they're like, what did those parents make them do? My parents were not political at all. So just putting that out there, but like, you know, what did those parents make that kid do? So the campaign didn't want that, but I never took no for answer. And it started on that that first day that I went into the campaign office. Long story short, very active in politics, took a break from politics at the end of high school, started to become a normal high schooler through a big party um, while my parents were gone uh, to visit my sister in California. And I, as most parties end up doing when they get too big in high school, got got caught. Um, parents were very upset. Um, 
and felt betrayed. And their punishment for me was not to uh, basically take my phone away or ground me or whatever. It was to have me interview 30 people that they felt were successful about how they got to where they were. And it had to be at least a half an hour. Um, and Whoa. an hour was their preferred 30 um, minutes to half an hour with 30 people. Yeah. That is punishment. Wow. It was punishment. And in the moment I hated every minute of it. I was like, and of course I was embarrassed. Cause what do I tell these people about like why I'm calling them up? Uh, yeah, I threw a party and this is my punishment. Like, <laughs> which I is not what I told them, but I learned so much from that punishment. And the main thread that I got from that was that if you're going to start something, do it, start a business, start a nonprofit, start whatever, do it when you're young, because you have so much less to lose. And I took that to heart. And six months after that party, I was well into where I am now, which is running a nonprofit. And um, it really was that party and the punishment from that party that uh, got me to to where I am now, uh, or at least got me on the path to where I am now. Of course, a lot more has happened since then. But that's kind of where it all started. That that's an I've never heard of anybody punishing their kid like that. Ironically, that's essentially what we're doing now, and I'm punishing myself, I guess, by your parents' standards. But um, <laughs> so let's talk about your nonprofit. I, so I looked you up, and obviously, I, I started on Twitter because social media is always fun. And then I kind of navigated through across to the nonprofit page, and I got to tell you, I'm I'm excited about what you do, and I find this time more than most in the kind of the political history of the United States, not to mention the fact that we've been all cooped up with COVID is probably given people a newfound like resonance and love for what you do. Right. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I run a nonprofit that is focused on bringing conservatives to the table on the environment and climate change. And almost everyone can get behind that, which is great, but also you're right. I mean, COVID has been, I mean, the worst couple of years of most people's lives um, that I, at least in my age group, for sure. And the reality is, while that's been so rough, the most positive moments for a lot of people have come outdoors. It's been these hikes, these walks, you know, uh, the ability to just go outside and get some fresh air because there's really nothing else you can do. And it kind of grounded, I think, a lot of people. I mean, now you're trying to get to go to a ski hill or you're trying to go on a hike or whatever, it's so packed you can't even uh, get on, which is a, a little bit annoying for someone who lo- has loved the environment for a while. Uh, but it's also My, great. Myself included, by the way. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> National parks are booked up like six months. I in know. Yeah. I used to go to the Tetons in the summer over busy weekends and half the campsite was full, not even. And now you can't book a campsite like six months in advance. I mean, it's insane, even for a weekday. Um, but it's, it's a good problem because people are starting to really realize how important the environment is. And everyone that's going to these places is from every walk of life, poor, rich, white, black, you know, East Coast, West Coast, middle America, does not matter. And that is really cool. So I, I have been really thankful for that. And that's why we've grown so much during COVID. I mean, we, we would have grown without COVID, but the fact that we've had this deep love for the environment kind of get reinstilled in people and also people realizing politics sucks right now. And the fact that the environment is being made political is BS. Um, has well, really hyper political. I mean, it, it's, and I, I don't generally get into politics uh, myself in a personal level with people, but I will tell you that 
So you're, happy, so you're a happy person then. Yeah, I try I try to be as happy as I can. Yeah. Well, if you're not but, involved in politics in any way, you're probably a very happy person. Well, I, I mean, banking. So, I mean, granted, it, politics are a natural kind of corollary to what we do. But what I will say is, is that the the hyper political nature of the environment right now is such that even people who don't fully understand the impacts of some of the political decisions are forming opinions. Right. And we, we've done this terrible job of educating the masses on kind of the broader political picture. I mean, I would imagine you coming out of school, 17, 18 years old, had a much greater appreciation of the political realm than anybody in your age demographic, right? Right. I'd seen things that I didn't want to see and, and, and knew things that no one really knows. And, uh, and on top of the things that typical people can be educated on. But you're right. People are not educated about what happens on the political process, which I'm not blaming them for, but it's true. We don't really teach it in school. I mean, you think about poli sci, it's not really politics. It's more like the history of politics, right? Right. Yeah. And looking at different systems as they were throughout history, which is important, but what's happening today is pretty darn important too. Oh yeah. A thousand percent. So, so your parents give you this punishment, you talk to these entrepreneurs and then how do you land on the idea as this for the nonprofit? Well, I, for my entire life had said, I'm a conservative political activist. Uh, well, my entire life since I was 10. And then I always had to like qualify it with certain things like, but, but I'm pro gay marriage or, or I'm pro environment or whatever. Um, and first of all, that frustrated me because I'm like, why are we being put into these boxes politically? Cause like, I'm not the only one who thinks these things. But then I also started to think, specific to the environment, which is my number one passion above politics by far. Why is this something that I have to qualify? And why is this something that I talk to young people about and they feel the same frustration, liberal or conservative, or they don't know who, you know, what they prescribe? Like, why are we all so frustrated about the divide on climate change and the environment? And there's nothing being done about it. And that's where I started to think. And I was in this class. It was during the 2016 election. Uh, I was in a marketing class about entrepreneurship and climate and like how to create a business in this world where people care about sustainability. And I sat in this class. It was, it was October of the 2016 election, my freshman year in college. And the debates were getting, you know, super fiery. You know, Hillary and Trump were at each other's throats including on this issue. And I was like, I'm sick of this. I want to, I, there's nothing out there that I can join to help fix this problem of climate change and the environment being so divided. So I'm just going to start my own thing. And I had no plan. I had no concept of what it was going to be. It could have just been a blog or it could be the nonprofit that it is today. I had no idea. Um, I bought a domain name during class. I tweeted out, Hey, does anyone want to join this? And we got the ball rolling and that's how it started. Wow. So it's funny to me. So you took all, there's so much initiative that went into this in, in a blind, like faith way. It, it's, it's crazy to see that because that, that's one of the things I think I, I told you before we started the podcast that you see with this commonality with entrepreneurs is they follow this passion almost blindly in that they say, I like this, I want to do it. And it's not like I'm going to chase the money or the revenue or the business it's just you just had a, a passion about this, and you were like, "Okay, this is my spot." Was that was that kind of it, or that's exactly it? I mean, my passion is the environment. I saw a gap, and I didn't care about what I was going to get paid for it. I mean, I honestly like I didn't get paid at all for doing anything. I lost money for three years um, putting it, 
you know, for, for, for working in on this nonprofit 80 hours a week for free, 80 plus hours, plus trying to go to school on top of that. Um, and traveling all the time and doing all this stuff for free. But it's, 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 it's exactly what you're talking about. It, and that's not a pity party. It's the fact that I really wanted to do this. And if it failed, I would move on and I would get over it eventually. <laughs> Probably would take a while. Uh, but I was, I, my goal was to succeed on my passion. And my passion is the environment. And my passion is politics. Um, I got to morph those and do something with it. And I wasn't going to be stopped. And that's just what it came down to. So let's talk about you know what you've done with it. Let, let's get into that a little bit because I'm I'm fascinated to see how someone in your age demographic and at your position and this passion and you're used to getting doors shut and you in the political realm where people I mean that at that point in time if I recall correctly I mean corporate social governance was a huge huge you know debate topic and even more so today I think I think in some ways it's died down a little bit in light of the rhetoric of things like COVID and everything else but it's still a huge push and there's a lot of companies that are, are becoming at least increasingly more aware anyway. So how do you fit in to the corporate world where in obviously the political realm where you're trying to make an impact and how have you grown? Yeah, well, first of all, we for the first two years raised like 30K. I mean, it was really we were we were really digging from the bottom of the barrel. We had some really hardworking people who were volunteering and we were accomplishing big things without any money. And that's, that's one thing that I really learned is you can accomplish a lot without any money. If, especially in the political world, you just need voices, you need people and you need people to buy in, uh, with their time and their, uh, influence. So within that more like guerrilla marketing, would you say, or I mean, we talking about like grassroots stuff or are we talking about actual grassroots stuff? Yeah, okay. All yeah. Right. We had, so there's, so our goal was to get conservatives to the table on the environment and climate change to start out. And it still is, but we've already gotten to that point, which I'll explain in a second, which is really exciting. But when we started, we did outreach to every state chairperson of college Republicans across the country. And because each state has their own head of college Republicans. And we had 42 of them sign on out of the 50 sign on to a letter saying we want Republicans to take climate change seriously. Wow. And that was free. We didn't, it didn't cost us any money to do it, just cost a lot of time and effort. When we published that, we got national news articles about it. We had elected officials reaching out, and that really got the ball rolling to the point now where obviously our budget is far bigger. We have 20 plus full time staff, um, we have chapters in a couple hundred communities across the country. But that grassroots that started then and has continued now in a bigger way, a larger way, has led a a time when we started where zero Republicans were engaging on climate change. There was zero bipartisan action. There was all this kind of division, and there still is some of that now. But in the past two years, the United States has passed some of the most bipartisan climate change environmental legislation ever seen, the biggest policies in terms of dollar amount, in terms of uh, votes, just really unanimous agreement. The, the second biggest committee caucus in the United States House is conservatives saying they want to take action on climate. It's the second biggest in the U.S. House now. So we've completely transformed the conversation. And that's from a political realm, but it's also happening at a cultural level. You have some of the biggest people in the corporate space, in the uh, technology space, the people who need to be on the right side of this 
also leaning into it. And the conversations change. It's not about climate denial versus climate alarmism. It's about, okay, we both agree this issue is real. How are we going to solve it? And that is largely because of what we've been able to do as an organization. And it's been really, really powerful to see that. And Hollywood's adopted it too. It's funny. There, there's been like a almost a ramp up of environmental concerned movies or movies that have some aspect of it based in sci-fi. It's really, really interesting to see how it's becoming this more and more prevalent thing. So how do you gauge your your success moving forward? Is it is it gauged in in reach or is it gauged in results? Like how do you how do you feel that you can make the most impact? Yeah, it's it's all about building grassroots. We feel like the bigger our grassroots bases of people who are in their communities fighting for these values, and it's not just politically, it's people going out and helping restore their local grassland all the way to telling their senator to vote yes on something. Like that's something, though we do both of those things and everything in between with our chapters. But the larger, you, the larger cohort of people across the country that you can have fighting for the environment who believe that this is not a partisan thing and actually believe that technology and capitalism and markets can work towards that, the better. And that's really where our impact comes from. So we want to measure it based on grassroots growth, but also on results. Are we reducing emissions in the United States? Are we, is our air cleaner? Is our water cleaner? Are our beautiful lands in this country being adequately conserved? Um, That's the type of result that we're looking for. That's longer term, but short term to make that happen, we need individuals in this country standing up and saying, I want our environment protected. I'm conservative. I'm liberal. I'm none of those things. And I'm going to prioritize the environment before divisive politics. And until we get that, the environment will never be protected as much as it should be. Hmm. Well, I mean, it, it sounds, uh, it's it's overwhelming, frankly. There's so many different areas where this conversation could go as far as specifics go. But it sounds like it, it's an insurmountable task. It's got to feel that way sometimes when you're trying to get the humans to move in addition to the actual physical physical damage that's being done at the same time, which is monumental in some cases, right? Yeah, the craziest thing about it is that there's there's so many moving parts and it's not like a topic like immigration or something where you could just be like, okay, well, we want to build the wall and add more border patrol or we don't. Like it's very like issues like that are fairly cut and dry as complex as they are. It's not like that with the environment because there's no perfect environment, right? Like there's no perfect planet. There's no perfect end goal. You can't just like say, let's get here and then we're done. Like there's none of that. And then on top of that complication, you have to move people and get them to be active. And it's hard enough to get people to vote, let alone like be active in politics or even in their local community to protect the environment. So it is very overwhelming. And with the amount of misinformation out there uh, on social media about this topic, it's also very difficult. So you basically just have to ignore it. That big mountain that we don't feel like is climbable, uh, if that's a word, is almost something that you just can't look up at. Because if you do, you're just going to get hung up looking at it and you're never going to make progress. And if I would have started looking up at the big mountain that we had to climb to even get conservatives engaged on climate and the environment years ago, I wouldn't have ever done it because it would have been too daunting. But you just can't think about that if you feel like it's right and you feel like the passion's there and you feel like you have the team to make it happen you're going to figure it out. And I don't know if I'm going to look back in my life and say, we fixed all these issues, because I don't think that's necessarily possible to fix them all. But did we make progress? Did we help do what we intended to do? 
that is something that is very, very plausible, but it wouldn't be if you tried to look at it all at once. So let, let's make this a real tangible, tactile experience for the listener. What's, what's some causes right now that your organization is really focused on and that you're trying to make a tangible impact on? Like, Let's give people some, some examples of what it is in the magnitude and scale of some of these mountains. Yeah. First of all, we're trying to get an alternative to the Green New Deal introduced. It's a pretty big mountain. Uh, also, we're trying, so it's that, plus that feeds into the second thing that I'll say, which is we're trying to reduce carbon emissions to the level that science says we need to, which is, it won't, ma- it won't matter what numbers I give people, they, it'll be not comprehensible. It's a lot, okay? It's a lot. It's a lot of cars doing things differently. It's a lot of energy being produced for your homes differently. It's a lot of businesses you're using. I mean, we think that tend to think about carbon footprint as our exhaust emissions from our car behind me. People can't see there's a Tesla behind me, but yeah, you know, in, in the real world, sadly, there's a tremendous amount of carbon emissions coming from business or from everyday life that we don't think about. Um, yeah, of course companies, but like, our, each one of us is a carbon emitter, like just by eating, living. And that's not, I mean, we should absolutely do those things. We, we, we we're not going to say that those things are bad, but that is it, it. We are all contributing to it. Companies at a much larger level. And then of course, governments, we're trying to do that at a global level over the, over the course of decades to get to a place that science says is safe for our globe. That's very difficult. And especially when you have to deal with the globe and not just your own country, not just your own state, not just your own city, but the globe. That's complex. Uh, it's, it's amazingly complex. And to get the humans in between the, the political, it's funny, you keep saying conservative, but it really sounds like you're, you're just trying to navigate the waters of politics today. I don't really know if it's essentially conservative as much as it is, it's just, tr- you have to pick a side. And I guess maybe that's the side that you've picked for the narrative, but it sounds like you're open to everything, but still to get people to move. Right. And, and we just feel like, and just like any business, you have to have a focus, right? You've got you've to really laser focus into what you're trying to achieve and then how you're going to get there. How, how we're going to get to everything I just talked about is you need both sides at the table to solve the problem. And conservatives have not been at the table politically in this country for a long time on climate and the environment. So that's why we focused on that. But you're exactly right. I mean, I have no doubt that if we can put our political beliefs aside to fight for our environment, which I feel like is is possible, that's also a big mountain to climb, though, because there's so many external factors fighting against unity on a topic, um, then like this is the one issue we can do it on. And so I don't care if you're conservative or liberal or whatever, and our organization doesn't either, but you need conservatives to be at the table and talking about it and passing legislation here and abroad, because most countries actually, to a lot of people's surprise, have a very similar political breakdown as we do here in the U.S. And they need to have conservatives at the table, too. And so there's a huge need for what we're doing. So, and I'm going to, and again, feel free to say no, and I would not take offense to it if you didn't want to do it, but obviously there are hurdles in the form of business and alternative agendas, and you've referenced them I don't know how comfortable you feel talking about some of those hurdles and I don't necessarily, you know, naming people, but like, obviously there are challenges beyond the politics, beyond the people that are economically driven or maybe even just, you know, more of a culturally driven thing. I mean, how, how do you feel 
what are those challenges and how do you feel about overcoming them? And do you stay away from discussions about them or, or do you just dive right in knowing that this is an issue whenever you get into that space? Well, I'm starting to dive more into the the hurdles because I feel like life's too short and this like our planet and what I'm doing is too important to to shy away from it. And I'm kind of dipping my toe in the water when it comes to that. The main the main reason why it's so difficult to solve environmental problems is that there is an incentive for problems not to be solved in politics. If you are a Democrat, it is better if a Republican is screwing up on an issue that you might care about so that you can go attack them for the next election and vice versa. And if you're an environmental nonprofit, there's an incentive in having the problem continue to exist so that you can continue raising money off of the problem existing so that you can continue working as an organization and getting funding. I'm, I'm not going to lie. I had never really thought about that, but I've seen other institutions in other realms do exactly that. And it just never, I never got the, I never put those two together. Wow. I never have understood the, the cancer issue to the level that a lot of people do, but it seems like that's another area where this could be the problem, right? You're profiting off of a problem existing because it's such a big problem. And it's something that people care about. If you solve it, you are, putting a huge, huge amount of people and a a large amount of organizations out of business. And that's a good thing long term, but people don't think about that. And whether they're intentionally trying to make the problem worse or not is one thing. But in politics, and with these nonprofits, it is a severe issue. And AOC, for example, the best thing for her and her career is for climate change to not have any progress made so that she can continue going on TV and tweeting about how bad the problem is and how much worse it's getting. Because when you do that, you get more attention. And when you get more attention, your stock grows. And when your stock grows, you lose sight of what you actually care about. And there's a lot of truth in that. And, you know, and another example I can think of, and I've experienced too, is when you're a company and you're really trying to focus on things like, you know, corporate social governance and doing the right thing for the world, you know, one of the things that you'll get, you know, pummeled with when, as soon as you make a statement about it is these third party organizations will come to you and they're going to try to get you to pay them to be an outside consultant for you to help you do that. Even though, you know, it's, it's, it's an economically viable business for them. And to your point, as long as that business is there for them to, to be a consultant, they're getting paid. So there is no immediate need to resolve everything. And we spend in, egregious amount of time discussing things and not implementing things. Exactly. And politicians, I sit down with them all the time, both sides do this thing where they say, very often, I like this idea a lot. And I usually would be for it, but it would give a win to the Democrats, or it would give a win to the Republicans. And I can't do that. And then they justify it by saying, well, yeah, it's kind of shady for me to do that. But if I go along with it, then it has broader implications on other issues. And those other issues are the ones that they're really wrong on. And we can't give them a win on this so that they can't win on other things. And overall, it's a moral decision. And they like convince themselves that it's the moral decision to not vote on the something or not engage on something because it would give the other side a win. And they totally think that's the right thing to do. And because both sides think it, 
it's really stalling progress in a bunch of things. And I think you'd see a lot more bipartisanship if people would be willing to not be so worried about giving the other side a win. But when that's the worry, then you don't solve problems. And that's a huge concern right now. So you and your position and, and your company, it's grown. You've got you know hundreds of, of these chapters out there and you guys are trying to make an impact. If you walk into a situation where you know that from a political standpoint, you're going to get some of that pushback and it's unquestionable it's going to happen. How do you lever your business model to get change in the face of that kind of adversity? Like how do you how do you get them to move when you know that getting them to move has implications that they don't want to accept? The thing that politicians are more scared of than giving the other side a win, the thing they're more scared of than losing an election is or losing money is their voters. Because at the end of the day, with how flawed our American system is, that is the one really awesome opportunity that we have as, as everyday Americans is that little do we know it, we actually have more power than anything else, especially when we band together. It doesn't matter how much money a candidate gets or how many wins they have or how many times they've taken shots at the other side if people aren't voting for them. And if they hear their voters particularly independent voters or voters from their own side, because those are the ones they need to keep advocating for something. For us, it's the environment. They are more likely to do it because they have a vested interest in that more than anything else. And so our model is you can make progress without voters taking action, but it's going to really, really, really be slow because of all the different hurdles that we've talked about. But if you can build a massive presence in a certain district or state in the country, uh, and then nationally, where elected officials feel the pressure from their own voters, that's what changes hearts and minds. That's what makes them feel like, actually, I'm going to have to do the right thing here, because if I don't, I'm going to lose. And I'm not going to lose because I don't have enough money or whatever. I'm going to lose because my voters would hate me. And we need to start mobilizing for results as voters, the people who are like sick of the divide and are kind of like tapping out. We actually need to kind of lean in because we aren't contacting our elected officials enough and we're not changing that problem that is existing and going down the wrong way. Uh, we can reverse that trend solely by speaking up seriously. So then how do you take all these voices, these, these voters, and you get them, how do you get them to mobilize? I mean, obviously voting has been a challenge in and of itself. I mean, with the political stigma between uh, Obama and then ultimately Trump, there was a lot of cultural divide, which I think lent itself to more voters coming out and new people. But unless there's some stigma in the air, it seems that people are unwilling to, to act or, or to deviate from their you know social status of life to go do something new like vote. How do you get people to to grasp and buy into the concept to vocalize their their concerns to the you know to their you know voted in officials well if i had the answer to that uh even though i run a nonprofit, i'd be a very wealthy man because every uh every company and nonprofit that's trying to do stuff would be reaching out and i would be getting paid millions and millions for but you have, but you have tactics you got you guys have right. a way right so we, i mean we're working towards that and Maybe someday we'll have it figured out. Maybe we can come back on and I'll be retired because we've solved all the problems. But the tactics that we have been using that have worked is to make these issues relevant for voters and make them feel like they have a stake in it. That like actually by not speaking out, they personally are losing. 
but by speaking out, they're helping and that there's like a positive, like there's a very hopeful approach to what we do in terms of tactics, because if you raise your voice and you advocate and something good happens and you are part of the reason for that, that is a really positive thing. And that even though these challenges are daunting, that the only way to tackle those is to be involved. That is a more hopeful approach than what we constantly hear. However, it's not divisive, so it doesn't get as much attention. And so that makes it harder to get to people. I mean, if I could sit down with every person in my apartment complex and explain to them how important their voice is for 15 minutes, I would say most of them would probably end up doing something about that because they are so empowered. But it's hard to reach people with that message because that's not how our you know, data, software, technology, news world works. And so while that tactic has worked, it is still another hurdle. <laughs> so it's fascinating to me. I, this, this, I was talking to uh, Jim Wilkinson, who's on a previous uh, podcast. He was a former chief of staff to Secretary of State Paulson during the Grave Session. And we were talking about kind of the idea of influence. And today's world you know, influence is almost quantifiable with social media and everything else. Uh, do you guys think that social media will help you lever your message or is it a different realm given that, let, let's be honest, politics and social media don't necessarily have a, a really good relationship in a lot of ways. Uh, and, and I think some, in some ways, some people have embraced it, but the majority of the political realm and frankly, the activists out there, I don't think embrace it the same way because so much of, of social media's message is disinformation. Let's call it that. How do you feel about you know, influence in your circle and social media. And I mean, it, it's, it's funny to me because you're a younger guy, you're hip, you're obviously cool enough to know this stuff. I don't know if I'm hip and cool, but I do know about the stuff. Yeah. Well, okay. There you go. Fair enough. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm old and gray. So <laughs> you're I, hip I'm, and I'm cool. Like, yeah. All right. I'll, I'll, I'll take it as a lie, but it's fine. Nonetheless, but I mean, do you lever social media for what you're going to do? Or does that devalue your message as a brand? Like, how do you look at that? And how do you, how do you quantify your influence? Social media is so important, but uh, I'll, I'll answer that by saying we we absolutely use it and we have to use it to quantify our influence. But to divert for a second, I'm a big football fan, big Packers fan, and Aaron Rodgers uh, is Aaron Rodgers. People kind of know who he is, pretty high name ID. There's uh, a division rival of ours, the Chicago Bears, that have a quarterback, and their team was like tweeting after the season ended this year when they were like super bad, the bears that their quarterback was going to be the quarterback of the future because he had a million followers on Instagram and therefore people universally liked him. <laughs> I and saw the same I argument. <laughs> I thought to myself and I'm like, what the hell does that have to do with playing football? Like I don't understand how that could connect at all, but that's how people are thinking that like, the more social media influence you have, the better person you are for whatever industry or whatever. And that's just not true. I mean, you look at politics today, it's the same thing. Ted Cruz, AOC, these are some of the most uninfluential people in terms of actual impact, but they're the most influential when it comes to their social media following because that's what they're worried about. That's what they're thinking about all day, every day. And so they're thinking about what buzzwords I can use, what uh, oversimplified graphics can I put out, whatever, to get more followers. That is their goal. And until the algorithms or until we as humans decide 
look, social media is important. It's an important tool. It's important to educate. Like there's a lot of important parts about it, but it's not the end all be all. And that maybe more followers or more influence in terms of social media doesn't equate to more results until we realize that we're, we're also going to be stuck in this place where it's hard to get results too. Because if we're worried about Justin Fields, the Bears quarterback, having a million followers instead of how he's actually playing, or we're worried about Ted Cruz's number of followers, which is in the millions, uh, instead of actually what he's doing for his state, then that's a problem. And so if we focus solely on social media as an organization, we could have a lot more growth, but we would be forgoing our morals and our values to do that. And we would be forgoing the impact that we've already been able to have. Now, on the flip side, at some point, you can only max out your influence if you don't have that big of an audience. And so we have been trying to think of how can we grow our social media impact without forgoing our morals and our values and the results that we want to see. And that is something that we're continually trying to refine. So it's very much important, but it's also very much a problematic place. And I completely understand the value proposition and the, the converse side of the position. Uh, you know, I've had this conversation with a lot of people and there seems to be a wide degree of acceptance of social media for what it is and hatred for what it is at the same time. So it's an interesting thing. And I, I love to ask people in, in your position of influence what their thoughts are, because number one, you know, as you grow and scale a company, that is an element of a company these days is your public persona and how you choose to identify it. And number two, it was some, such a connected, uh, you know, base of consumers for, let's call it your product. Um, you know, it's interesting to see how they resonate with with your brand and your identity. So I want to be of your time. So I, I want to make sure that I get into a couple of last things that are really important is, you know, your company is, is growing and scaling. Like, how do you define success for what you do next? Like, what, what are your goals for the next year? Like, how do you how do you motivate your team to march towards that? Yeah, so we've just started uh, incorporating what some people might know. Um, it's called the uh, OKR strategy um, for our organization. A lot of companies have been using it. That's kind of what we use. And it's fairly new, like honing in on, on that specific of objectives and key results, which is what the OKR stands for. We have four key objectives uh, that all are going to be fairly timeless. I mean, at some point they could shift a little bit. And then the key results are fairly centered on like this quarter and this year. And how we're measuring growth is based on a few things. Uh, it's based on influence of policies. Uh, it's based on membership growth within our organization. Uh, it's based on the social media reach that we're talking about. It's based on big events and kind of landmark things that people in our community can feel good about. And then it's also based on financial growth of how can we fund these things um, to actually happen. And unlike a for-profit, you know, we're selling, we're not selling a product, we're selling ideas. And so how do we make that more compelling, not just to, to donors, but to the people who are in our communities trying to buy into our ideas um, nationwide. And that's, you know, that's a big focus. So those are all metrics of success and it all boils down to growth and, and how can we compare this year versus last year? And we've tripled pretty much every year in all the growth metrics or more um, st steadily. Can we continue that growth? Uh, and that's kind of what we're on pace for this year with our, with our goals. Well, my friend Benji, you have a palpable entrepreneurial spirit and and your passion for helping is is visible on 
I knew that before I talked to you. That's why I was looking forward to talking to you. As, as you can tell, just e- even the stuff you say on, on Twitter and some of your feed, it, you're a good dude and it shines through. So, Well, thank you. I, I feel like at, at some point, authenticity is going to shine through in this crazy world we're living in. And my goal this year is to be more authentic. And that might be saying things and doing things that people don't want me to say or do because it's not what they uh, expect. Um, but I think you know, we're on this planet for who knows how long and we might as well make the most of it. And by making the most of it, it's like, I've really realized like being kind to people, being passionate, fighting for what you believe in, really taking ideas that you want to make happen and just making them happen. And then also being authentic and like being real. Um, because if you're not, you might grow in fame and popularity, but at what cost? And I think, um, Hopefully at some point we can continue growing at a rate that's faster than it is now with authenticity, but we've also forgone a lot of growth because we haven't just caved to the political moment of the day, but it's worth it in the end because I can actually sleep at night and I can continue fighting for what I believe in. I don't have to hide, hide things. So I appreciate you saying that. And it's a, it's a core part of who I am and, and thankfully it was instilled early on in my life. Well, and you got a wonderful familial background in order to, to make that happen. And good for your parents. They sound like astonishing parents. Before I let you go. Uh, they are astonishing is, parents yeah, in, they, a, they, in a wonderful way. That, That's a that, huge part too. It's like if I'm ever going to have kids, I'm uh, too young to, to, to have them yet. But, you know, being a parent is probably the biggest, most important job is what I've realized. Well, I've got a, we have a two year, we waited till we were a little older, my wife and I, and we have a two, two year old and nine months son. So just under three. And being a parent, being a dad has changed my world in, in a way that I can't even really put in the words, but it is by far and away the most sensational thing I ever did. And I never thought I was going to be a dad. My wife didn't either. We, you know, we, we were dating for a long time and never really thought that was kind of our path. And something about just having a little you around, you know, puts an arc to your perspective that frankly, I wish I would have done it 10, you know, 20 years earlier. I couldn't, have, I couldn't have done it for a number of reasons, not the least of which was, you know, social life and financial position, but it's, it's astonishing to, to see now as a parent, how much influence we really do have over our kids. And, you know, uh, before I want to be mindful of your time. So before I let you go, I want you to tell them where to find you, where to find the company, uh, tell us all the places plug away. I want to hear, I want them to be able to find you, uh, you know, as easy as possible. So please. Well, the most easy way to find me on the weekends is somewhere outdoors. So we'll start with that. Um, and uh, we're at a Packers game. So if you want to find me in person, that's where you'll find me. The, uh, the other places you can find me, if, if, if for some reason you can't run into me out there, are uh, on social media at Benji Backer on all social media platforms, uh, B-E-N-J-I-B-A-C-K-E-R. And then our organization is at ACC. So the letters ACC underscore national. Um, so ACC underscore national. Unfortunately, ACC itself was taken. There's uh, a few ACCs out there, uh, including uh, a, a sports conference and a bunch of coalitions. So ACC underscore national and at Benji Backer. Are it. There's no other Benji Backer in the world. So um, I, I got that domain name. Um, but that's where you can find us. And, uh, and, and of course, all of our links and websites and news hits and who we are and all that stuff can be found on those, those channels. And we will plug them at the bottom in the show notes. So when this goes live, you'll be able to find them there. Benji, I appreciate you. Thank you so much for coming on. Well, thanks for having me. Awesome discussion and, and really appreciated being here and excited to stay in touch over the next couple of years. All right, my friend. Take care.
I hope you enjoyed today's conversation on the Higher Standard Podcast. Make sure to hit subscribe or follow on whatever platform you are listening to this on. If you like this episode, please write a review and share it with us. You're getting the show up and running right now, so every message, every review, and every note counts. This show exists to showcase what's possible when leaders decide to uphold a higher standard for their businesses, their investments, their families, and most importantly, themselves. If you want to see more of my content, I post daily on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. So be sure to follow me on your favorite social media platform. And with that, it is a wrap. And as always, I look forward to hanging with you all on the next episode.